We are in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16 today. And uh, if you have a Bible, turn there, or we'll have it up on the screen. I don't want you to get too used to the screen, although I think it's good. I like it too, but it's good to have thumb through your Bible also on Sunday morning. So keep bringing your Bibles, keep thumbing through, and also use the screen. So uh, um, I remember a day when you had to use your Bible if you were going to follow along. And so uh, I think it's good. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for um, this uh, holiday weekend, Memorial Day. And uh, we do want to thank you for the, the servicemen that have and women that have given their lives for their country. And Lord, we wouldn't be sitting here uh, being able to open our Bible or have a worship service if it wasn't for these people who went and sacrificed their life uh, to keep us free from horrible people that would want to destroy the, uh, our freedom. And we thank you for them. Bless those that are serving now, um, that they would feel like they are the unsung heroes, that they, that they are... Uh, our, our wall of protection, humanly speaking, from uh, uh, people that would want to do us harm. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us out of war. We know that sometimes it has been necessary in our past, but we pray that you keep this country safe from attack and from war and from death and, and bring your healing uh, grace to our world. And uh, Father, we just pray now as we go into Hebrews that this very... Uh, interesting passage that you would just uh, split the, the split it wide open to our minds and hearts and affect us before we leave here today we love you lord thank you that you are the god who's in control in jesus name we pray amen okay so uh if you've looked at your bulletins or kind of uh, maybe seen online we are in part three of um how to act part three how to act and um, as I mentioned uh, the last two weeks, so many of the New Testament books, the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter and so on, are almost split in two. If you've ever noticed this, that in the first half of these books, I've mentioned this the last couple of weeks, you have doctrine. Heavy, thick, wonderful, life-changing doctrine about who Jesus is, about the fact that he came to this earth, about the fact that as a sinless person, being God, he went to the cross and atoned for every infraction of the holy law of God that we ever have committed or will commit, was buried in the tomb three days, rose up bodily from the grave, and is sat, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and it's, he's coming back. He's returning. I could tell you're just thrilled with that. You know, you, the, the, the energy here is just... <laughs> but he's coming back. And, we get, and, then, and then we get to be placed into union with him the moment we're saved. We get to be placed in union with God. And I don't have time to go into how thrilling that is, but all of his righteousness has replaced all of our corruption. And when Jesus looks at you this morning... He didn't see, doesn't see a person who hasn't had their third cup of coffee, you know? What he sees is Christ. God sees Christ when he looks at you and me. I don't know anything more thrilling. I don't. I don't, I, 
I have no other, that's it. That's the mountaintop. And we learn these doctrines in the first half of these New Testament books. But then it, the gears switch, and in the second part of these books, we get practice. Doctrine without practice is just religion. God expects there to be an outflow of something happening in our lives as a result of all these head-spinning truths that we hear and read about in the first half of these books. Now, Hebrews is divided up into two parts, 1 through 12 and 13. 1 through 12, for the most part, is just this meaty buffet of awesome, tasty, yummy, stick-to-your-ribs doctrine. I shouldn't be using those analogies right before lunch, but I... That's how I look at it. But then the second half, half, if you look at Hebrews 13, are practical doctrines, or practical, uh, how to practice the doctrines, okay? La- uh, two weeks ago, the first part of the doctrine was how to act towards other people. Remember that? Just nod. Affirm me, okay? Um, we talked about the fact that if we are going to uh, uh, act towards uh, other people, we've got to love them, We've got to be hospitable to them, and we've got to pray and support them when they're being mistreated or hurt. And if we do those three things, we'll accomplish everything we need to do in relationship to other people in the church. Just think about it. Love, hospitality, and pray and, and, and encourage them when they're being mistreated. It's all there, right there in, that, in verses 1 through 3. Then last week, we talked about how to act towards ourselves. And I don't know if you were here for that, but we talked about marriage. And then we need to honor marriage. And we need to be sexually pure uh, by the grace of God and not commit sexual immorality in body or mind by the grace of God. Can't do it ourselves. Keep our lives free from the love of money. Be content with what we have. Understand he will never leave us or forsake us. We need to remember those saints that have gone before us and look to them as our examples. Okay, pull up our file of people we say, wow, they walked with Jesus. Remember them, and don't be carried away with strange teachings, specifically teachings that tell us we need more than Jesus for salvation and for sanctification. And if you think about that, if we do all that in regard to ourselves, we're going to be home free. I mean, I don't mean this, don't take this the wrong way, but we wouldn't need the rest of the Bible if we just had that, that as far as how to behave towards ourselves. Today, we come to the third part in this fi- these final exhortations, how to act towards God. What is, how does God want us to act towards him? I mean, I feel like, like when we're opening up this book this morning, it's like really special. It's like this wonderful secret. It's just like this, ooh, wow kind of thing. He's going to tell me, God's going to tell me and you today through this passage, how God wants us to act towards him. It's exciting. It really is. But I got to ask you to do one thing before we go into this. And that is, you need to act like a first century Jewish Christian. Okay? So, what I need to do, kind of go back in time in your mind and and just think about the fact that you are a Jew. You were raised a Jew. You went to synagogue. You... uh, uh, kept all the high holy days and you were bar mitzvahed or bat mitzvahed and you uh, have studied the Old Testament scriptures. And then, just to bless your life, God touched you with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You were saved 
And now you get to tell your whole family community you're a believer in Jesus. Isn't that great? Won't that be fun? You can just see your Jewish parents and family going, praise the Lord. We were praying that you'd leave Judaism and go over to Jesus. Not so much. But you're one of those first century Jews who said, you know, I'm willing to trade it all for Jesus. And there's a lot of blowback to that. But uh, once you get to, to that point, then the, the question becomes, not only how I act towards uh, others and myself, but how do I act toward God? What does God want from me? And that's where we're going to go today. Final exhortations, part three, how to act toward God. The first way that we act toward God, and uh, if you can't, if you don't understand all of this, again, play the part of a Jewish first century believer, just go, oi! I can't understand this. Just oi! Okay. Because this is kind of, you got to go Jewish on this, okay? Number one, if, how do you act towards God? Verse 10 tells us. Look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. So the first way that we act towards God, I know you got the whole thing there, but just, we're just at verse 10, is go to God's true altar. You got to go to God's true altar. Okay, now it says here, and then I'm going to add a little bit to it, as believers in Christ, we have a new altar. Who is our new altar? Jesus Christ. Our new altar is Jesus himself for salvation, but also for our daily walk. It's an altar that the priests in the tabernacle or temple uh, from the, that were descended from the line of Aaron uh, couldn't eat. They could not eat of this altar or didn't eat because why? They were, remained unsaved. They, were, they did not turn to Jesus as Messiah. I'm sure some of them did, but the ones they're talking about now did not do that. They were not believers in Jesus Christ as Messiah. Now that would have made a great impression on those considering a return to Judaism because they were, they, there were people in the church that, this church that the writer is writing to, they were tired. They're tired of getting kicked around. And you know, have you ever been so tired of being kicked around by somebody that you just wanted to leave? You just wanted to go somewhere else so they couldn't kick you around anymore? It's, I've been there. I'm sure you have at one time or another. And that would have been really, really tempting to go back to the old altar, go back to the tabernacle, the temple, back with all your friends, all the social connections that you had. Now you could get a job. Now you wouldn't get your property confiscated. Now they wouldn't call you uh, a traitor but that would have had a big impression on them because the writer's saying, don't leave the right altar. Don't stay at the right altar. Don't give up. Okay? We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle or the temple, the priests, have no right to eat. Why did they have no right to eat? Because they were not trusting Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives, even though they had all this tradition. Um, Stephen J. Cole, who I've really been blessed to use a lot in this series, puts it this way. The writer is repeating the truth that he has emphasized before, that Christ is superior to the Jewish sacrificial system because he fulfilled it. Yay. You know that Jesus never violated one of the 613 oral and written traditions of Judaism? Not one. Not one. 
until he wanted to and could because some, some of them were just oral traditions. But he didn't violate one point of the law his whole life on earth because he was God, God in flesh. Wow. All right, anyway, we still have the altar in the temple where we offer sacrifices as our people have done since the days of Moses. But you Christians have no such altar. So how can you say that Christianity is superior to Judaism when you abandon such a thing as the altar? To answer this taunt, the author replies, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Serve or minister here means worshipful service and could refer to the priests who offer the sacrifice or to the Jewish worshipers who brought the sacrifices to the temple. Here's what the author is saying in this first verse. The author is saying that as long as the Jews brought their sacrifices to the temple, they were missing God's true altar, namely his son, who gave himself as the complete and final sacrifice for our sins. We have, who have trusted in him for salvation feed on him by faith as our true food and drink. So don't go back. We have an altar, Jesus, from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And we can partake, we have partaken of Christ and we shouldn't change. Um, John's basically put this in these terms in John chapter 6 and verse 48. He said this, or Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And so the first point here about how we should act towards God is, listen to me, make Jesus your permanent altar. When you're down on your knees, when you do your quiet time, make, make Jesus your altar. When you're driving in your car, make Jesus your altar. When you're with your family, make Jesus your altar. When you're at work, make Jesus your altar. He is the right altar. All other religion, all other Secular activity is the wrong altar. But you have the right altar. So the first thing that God wants us to do when we're acting towards him is make Jesus our altar. Don't go back to the previous one. Okay? Do we, did we all have a previous altar? Well, sure we did. It was either the world, flesh, and devil, sin, and secularized thinking, or... Uh, some type of other altar that we worshiped at. I had several altars before I came to Christ, religious and secular. But Christ is our altar, so treat him as our one and only altar. Now, if we, we could quit right now and say all we need to say, and you're going, yeah, that's a good idea. No, you're not saying that. But um, we could quit right now and say, if we make Jesus our altar, that's all we need to do. But we go on to another one here. The second way that we're to act towards God here is not go to the true altar, Jesus, okay, to be saved. We need to go outside the camp. We need to go outside. I'm, I told you, you have to think like a first century Jew here. I'm, I'm seeing a whole lot of invisible oys going on here right now. Okay, but you need to go, we need to go outside the camp. What does that mean? Well, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high holy day of atonement, the blood, of, the blood of the animals is taken to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, as an offering. 
on the high holy day of Yom Kippur, you were not allowed to eat the meat of the sacrifice that was slain. Only the blood on Yom Kippur because it was the day of atonement. Okay? And, uh, and, and then after the blood has been offered on the altar, they took the animal and they, took it, they dragged it out. Well, I don't know if they dragged it, but they took it outside the camp and they burned it outside the gate of the city. We read that in verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Okay? Now look at verse 12. And so Jesus offered, also offered outside the city, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Now this is shockwaves to the first century Jew. But it's applied, this high holy day of Yom Kippur of atonement was applied to Jesus, who also suffered outside the city gate. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus suffered outside the city gate? Well, we go to the Gospel of John, and we hear an interesting sound when we go to the Gospel of John. And uh, chapter 19, John 19. John 19 and verse 16. And this is what it says. John 19, 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, and he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. So um, Jesus suffered outside the city gate, Went, they took him to Golgotha, called the place of the skull, and he shed his blood on the cross outside the city, outside the walls of the city. He shed his blood on the cross as an atonement for our sins to make us holy through his perfect blood. And we've heard this over and over again through the book of Hebrews. I want to go back to chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews to verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13 says this, uh, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that they may serve the living God. And then up in chapter 10, verse 10, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then verse 14, I think my favorite verse in the Bible for me, because by one sacrifice he is made perfect forever. That's you. You're already perfect in the eyes of God, who are being made holy, who are going through the, the spiritual growth process as a Christian. And that's why the Christian's altar is superior to the Jewish altar, because Jesus completed the atonement to provide a once and for all sacrifice for sin to those who received it for themselves and who no longer place themselves under the old Jewish system. And then we go to verse 13. Let us then, like Jesus, go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. How are we supposed to act toward God? We make Jesus our salvation altar and our daily sanctification altar. We focus on Jesus not on a system of rules and religions and systems and formulas, not on the world, the flesh, and the devil. We make Jesus our altar. Jesus, you are our altar. You are number one. 
And then we go outside the camp with Jesus. Could you explain that more? Sure. We follow Jesus outside the camp. What's the camp for us? Well, as first century Jews, it would be the old Jewish law, okay, keeping these rules and regulations and sacrifices for only a temporary atonement. Or if you're not Jewish, or if you are Jewish rather, no, if you're not Jewish, then away from your worldly ways and ways that are an offense to God. You go outside of the inner walls of the city to Jesus, and you bear the disgrace he bore. And the idea here is being a, a, having allegiance and unconditional commitment to Jesus found here in verse 13. Now, let me read this. The meaning was clear to the original readers here. As Cole says, the writer was saying, you must leave, now you're, you're Jews. Can I get an oi from you guys? Oy. Okay, you're Jews. Okay. We'll be having some gefilte fish and chicken noodles, chicken soup with matzo balls and some other good, no, we're not going to do that. Okay. As Cole says, the writer says, you must leave Judaism to follow Jesus Christ. You can't hang on to your old religion, your old self-dependent, self-righteous religious ways, which are now invalid, and just add Jesus to the mix. No, you must leave the old and turn exclusively to Jesus and go outside the camp, the camp of your old life system, your old life values, whether religious or secular. Go outside that camp and be willing to suffer disgrace, Reproach, abuse, shame, rejection, persecution, misunderstanding, or conflict from people who cannot see what we see by God's grace. Amen. Jesus. Think about it in the first century, how they were kicked around like dirt. Go outside your camp and go to the camp of Jesus and be willing to be misunderstood, ridiculed, mocked, made fun of. I'm seeing that in our... It's just interesting, I'm taking the long view of things here, but how more and more headlines are overtly blaming Christians for things in our society. Have you noticed that at all? Yeah. It's just fascinating. They would have never said that 15, 25 years ago. But I'm, I'm literally seeing people in leadership of our country and other people saying, if it weren't for these Christians... And we need to be willing to go outside the camp of what, what we were accepted in the world or living by the world standards or we were religious people and go outside that camp and, and bear disgrace with Jesus, okay? At the hand of who? Spiritually blind people. People who are proud, self-sufficient, evil-minded unbelievers who are offended by the cross of Jesus. That's how we act towards God. We make Jesus our exclusive altar to live by, pray by, look to, uh, focus on in every aspect of our life, and we go outside the camp of the religious or secular world to, uh, to, with Jesus and bear the mocking and disgrace that he bore if need be. And basically, the writer is saying to these first century Jews, you can't hang on to the old ways and the old times or possibly the old friends anymore. you got to follow Jesus. We have to go outside the camp and be willing to suffer, religious or secular, and suffer reproach and rejection and misunderstanding for Christ's sake. 
Let me ask you this. Have you gone outside your old camp? No, I got one foot in my old camp and one foot with Jesus. Then you're not a Christian. Or maybe you're struggling. Then go all the way to the outside the camp, your old camp. What's your old camp? Think in your mind, what's my old camp? I got to get out of that camp and go to exclusive devotion to Jesus no matter what it costs. Man, I remember, I don't even have time to share this. I remembered when all the got buds I had growing up in the old neighborhood, and the, the, the name of the game was Party. You ever have, you remember that? You're, the, nobody but me? Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're all such good people. And I remember I got saved moving into my senior year of high school. And all of a sudden, all my old buddies from the neighborhood were gone. They wanted nothing to do with me. I'll never forget it. I could tell you a story about how I could tell you the moment in time when I realized, wow, I switched camps. And they don't want, they don't want to be around me. Have you, have you switched your camp? That's, that's what God's saying here. How, God is saying, you want to know how to act to me, Cedar Home? Make my son your altar, always. And then leave the previous camp. Leave it, go away from it. That doesn't mean you don't still love your, your old ways, or not ways, but people. And, but it means you're not going to join in their camp. You're going to leave that camp. Okay. And then we go to a third way to act towards God. We make Christ our true altar in every aspect of our lives. We go outside our previous camp, and then we hold firmly to the promise of his heavenly city. Aren't you glad you're going to a new city? There's a lot of people that go to church here normally that are in a different city today. Some are in eastern Washington camping. I hope it rains. No, I mean, I didn't say. Uh, I said, don't go on Sunday. It's going to rain. No, no, I didn't say that. Just kidding. Sort of. And um, so, uh, but there's a lot of people from our church today. There are a lot of different cities. But we have, ultimately, we're going to a heavenly city. Aren't you glad? Heaven is our ultimate hope beyond this life. Look at verse 14. For here, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We're looking for the city that is to come. As great as a physical Jerusalem was, or any city in the ancient world, it was only temporary. In fact, as the Jews who did not get saved were talking to the Jews that got saved, they said, look at our city. Look at the temple. Look how glorious the temple is. What they didn't realize is that in, in about 40 years, that temple would be reduced to rubble by um, the Roman uh, Emperor Titus and all the mercenaries that he hired to destroy Jerusalem. Okay. But they're bragging on Jerusalem. They're saying, we got the city, we got the temple, uh, and uh, why don't you just come back? You know, Jesus, is, Jesus stuff is causing you nothing but problems. And just come back. How tempting that might have been to some of them. Um, but I think and pray and hope that most of them said, no, we got a better city coming up. This city here is an enduring city. And so we're just going to look at that city because that's our great hope. And you know, Jesus, Jesus did talk about this city. Not infrequently. But I want to go to John 
chapter 14. Look, listen, let's listen to what Jesus said about this city we're going to. John 14, in verses 1 through 3. A time-worn passage that most people know, but it's ne- you can never mention it too often. John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, comforting them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. That boggles the mind, doesn't it? I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you, may, that you also may be where I am. He's talking about a city that he's preparing for you and me. That's our hope. Don't forget that in tumultuous times. You know, who knows what's going to happen in the next year, 10, 20 years. But you know what? Something, you know what, what can't be taken away from us? The city. The city of heaven. Whether we're martyred or whether we just go on into, you know, physical death or something, um, we're going to that city and we're going to live there forever with Jesus. And he's preparing that place. What a glorious place it will be. And by the way, if, if you've never accepted Christ or received Christ as your Lord and Savior, can you give me a better reason than it gives you a hope that you're going to a city that Jesus is preparing for his people? Do you know, hell's already prepared. There's no preparation. You won't find anywhere in the Bible where it says Jesus is preparing hell. But he says, here, I'm preparing a city for you. How long does it take Jesus to do that? Well, he created the universe in one moment in time. So if he's going to prepare a place, and he's been, it's been, what, 2,000 years? That's going to be quite a place. It's going to be quite a city. Okay? But... Are we look, see, if you look at verse 14, it says, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Are you? Yeah. Are you looking for it? See, I, you notice it doesn't say, do you believe that we're going to that city? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that you acknowledge that we're going to a city. It says, we are looking. We're looking for a city. We're longing and looking and looking and longing and longing and looking and looking and longing. And God said we can do that as an antidote for what we are experiencing in our world today. Did you hear that? It's an, Jesus says don't get all scissorinctum about stuff. That's a Jewish word. Don't get all scissorinctum about it. Don't walk around town going, oi! At the latest newspaper headline. Do they still make newspapers, by the way? Okay, the latest internet headline. Don't do that. Why? Because I go to prepare a place for you. Amen. No, and there's not an oi. That's not an oi thing. That's a, <laughs> amen, you see. Obviously not Jewish. <laughs> um, Jesus says, if you want to get over your downers about this world, just look that I am preparing a place for you to come to that you will never, ever have to worry about getting thrown out. You'll be in a, a resurrected body. Thank goodness. Took me 15 minutes to get up that stairs this morning. 
I was just saying, Lord, help Jerry pray long enough so that I can get up to my stool. <laughs> Not really, but you, I'm looking forward to that. That's how we deal with it. You say, well, that's escapism. No, it's realism. And God says, I, Jesus said, uh, do not be anxious. Uh, don't, 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 don't worry. Why? Because you're going, in just this amount of time, we'll be there. So don't let the world drag you down. We have a hope beyond this world. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. I hope that you're feeling that today, uh, too. We've got to be looking for it. Now, um, I started to think this week, is what, else, what in life have I looked forward to? I mean, what can I really remember that I was looking and longing for and looking and longing for and looking? And you know what came to my mind? The city bus in February in Lansing, Michigan. <laughs> I don't have to tell you, unless you lived in the Midwest, I don't have to tell you how cold it gets in the wintertime. At least it did then. This is back when I was in, went to community college and then went to state university, and I had to take the bus. And sometimes the, the weather was really bad in the winter. And I mean, I'm talking under, below zero bad with, with just a blizzard, and you're standing at this bus stop, and you're looking, and you're looking for those two headlights. And it seems like it's taken forever. Oh, God, please, I'm going to die, you know. Because <laughs> you try to park your own car on a state university campus. There are no parking spaces. On purpose, they do that. So that every kid won't bring their car to, to school, you know. Looking, longing, longing, looking, freezing, longing, looking swirling wind. You're like a frozen icicle there. And that's the way God wants us to look for at heaven. Looking, longing, longing, and looking, and looking, and longing. You know, that really does, that transforms our behavior. Okay? Because if we look forward to heaven, we'll live like we're going to heaven. Okay? That's number three. Okay? We we hold firmly to the promise of his heavenly city, and it's so easy to get tied down to this world, this city, is it not? It is. Heaven is our ultimate home. That's where we're going. We're looking for the city that is to come. It's the same city that Abraham and the patriarchs looked to. It's the same city that the apostle Paul was looking forward to. It's the same city that millions of Christians have looked forward to throughout history. Are you looking for it? You say, I'm going to heaven. No, are you looking for it? We'll say, I believe in heaven. No, are you looking for it? Every day. That's what transforms, that's what gets us out of the hole that this world tries to throw us in uh, of all the, the stuff that's happening. And it's not that we deny that it's happening but we know we have a better place to go to. And lastly, lastly, how are we to act towards God, make Jesus our altar, not the altar of our past, but the new altar? And, and, we, and we go outside the camp of our past, whether it's religious rule-keeping or secular sinning, we go out of that altar or out of that, that, that uh, camp. We go to that camp of Jesus, where Jesus is. Okay, we go outside the camp. And then we, we, we hold firmly to the promise of his heavenly city. And finally, we praise God the proper way. Now, I am not going to personally charge you for this 
seminar I'm about to give. I'm going to give you a seminar on worship and praise in about five minutes. Okay? And then we have a very, very short video we want to show, and then we'll go. But how, how do we, do, how do we uh, act towards God? We praise him the proper way. Look how we do it. 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share it with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Okay, you know, uh, how do we act towards God? We praise him. We praise God. Okay, we praise God. How many of us praise God more this week than we thought about what a mess the world's in? I, do, I thought, I, I see somebody that raised their hand, I thought, if anybody raises their hand, it's going to be them, because I know them, and they, they probably do. But most of us don't. I didn't. I praised him, but, you know, you get sucked into this world. But we're to praise God, okay? We're to praise God in a certain way, Okay? And we're going to go through those real quick. But um, we are to give a sacrifice of praise to God. And again, you might ask yourself, that is so not practical. Ah. But it is. Praise is the most practical thing you can do for yourself emotionally on earth. Because it pulls you into God and it pulls God into you. Praise is acknowledging who God is, and it's mentally bringing God into the picture of our minds and lives. See, we can walk around as Christians not even have an awareness of God in all that's hurting our lives or all that's going on in the world. But if we praise him, we get to know his love and care and his sovereignty over all things, and that he's in control. And the anxiety begins to melt away. Okay, let's look at what we do here. How do you, this is your praise seminar, all in about two or three minutes. Number one, you got to do it through Jesus. Okay? Through Jesus then, therefore let us offer, uh, offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Jesus is the only one through whom real healthy praise can go. Because it's only through Jesus that we, we go to God. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. There's one me, uh, mediator be, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We can't praise without Jesus, okay? And without Jesus' strength. We shouldn't praise uh, God in our own strength. We need the strength of Jesus who gives us the spirit to worship. By the way, don't wait for Sunday morning to praise. Don't wait. Get in the mood. Start Monday. Okay? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then pour it on Sunday morning. Get your little, um, what are those little square things that we carry around? Phones. And uh, <laughs> put on worship music and stick it by the sink in the bathroom and get in the mood. So it has to be through Jesus. And it has to be what, or should be what? Continual. Let us, therefore, continually offer a praise to God. Not just on Sundays. Not just when we're in trouble. Not just when we don't have anything else to do. 
But as one person said, worship and praise to God should be the whole tenor of our lives, a priority. And if you're a grumbler, praise will, kick, praise will um, solve grumbling. Don't raise your hand. We, you may have... Never mind. Okay. <laughs> maybe you're a grumbler, or maybe you're a complainer, or a gossip. Do you have a problem with your mouth? Or hippo, you're, you're a hypocrite. Or maybe you, you, you're full of fear and anxiety. Praise solves those things. It does. Because it reminds us that God is with us and he's in control and he cares for us. So it's got to be through Jesus. It's gotta be, it should be continual. I know that's hard. I don't know how many times I've been driving between Stanwood and I'm, I'm just about halfway between Stanwood and the Arlington exit and I think, well, I should be praising God. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do while I drive. I'm going to praise God. I cast all my cares upon you. Seven seconds later, I'm carrying the ball for the Seahawks down, down the field. It's me. I'm, I'm off in la-la land. Oh, no, I got to praise God. I cast all my cares. And then seven seconds later, I'm, 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 my mind wanders, but I'm giving it the college try here. It's hard to be continually praising of God, but do it. And then pr- make sure we're praising to who? Through Jesus as continually as we can, offer to God. Do you know you can worship nothing? You and I can praise nothing. We can praise the air, ourselves, the flesh. We can worship to each other. No, it's supposed to be to God. And he's listening, as as fantastic as that sounds. And then it should be a sacrifice of praise. It means giving up our time and our self-interest to praise him. And it means, needs to be the fruit of lips that confess his name. What does that mean? That means w- that we're willingly bowing our hearts before God. We're reveling in who he is and what he has done as revealed in his word and by his spirit. We're just reveling in God. A fruit of lips that confess his name. And then it says that, and this is one you might want to turn your hearing aid off for, um, all praise and worship is not valid until it results in good works. Now, look at this. And do not forget or do not neglect to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You know, if the circle of worship is not complete until it results in ministering to other people, and it's not like, okay, we, we lift our hands up to you and worship God on Sunday morning. We go out and we don't think about what we can do for other people. But there are two things it says here. Do good to others. That's a general term for looking out for all kinds of ways to show practical ministry to other people and by sharing with others. It's a Greek word, koinonia, and it means sharing the essentials of life with those who lack them and are unable to work to attain them. So how do you... How, and it says here, for such, with such sacrifice, it says God is pleased when our worship goes full circle and it involves ministering to people, then we have truly worshiped. Now, no, again, what is true worship? It's going to, it's worshiping in the power of Jesus, okay? Through Jesus. It's continual. It comes off our mouth as praise, a sacrifice, taking the time to do it. It's the fruit of lips that confess his name. It's not forgetting to do good and to share with others. That's all you need to know about worship as we do it sincerely.
Okay, that's part three. Part four will be next week. And I won't tell you what it is now, but you can read ahead and find out. But it's been fascinating to me as I close right now. It's been fascinating to me that doing these things, whether it's ministering to others, how we act towards others, how we act towards ourselves, and how we act towards God, doing these things takes everything, uh, 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 takes care of everything in relation to God. If we did just these four things, endeavor to do that, all of our life and relationship to God and how we act towards him would be fulfilled. Okay? Everything we need to know. And so I'm challenging you and myself that we should go to God's true altar every moment of every day, and he is Jesus. Okay? That we go outside the camp, we are willing to bear reproach for leaving our old life completely and walking into the new one. Okay, whether it's religious or secular. We're holding firmly to the promise of the heavenly city, and we're asking ourselves, well, first of all, we're thanking God for him, saying, is there anything I'm doing now that wouldn't, I wouldn't be wanting to do in heaven? And then we praise God the proper way, through Jesus continually, with the fruit of our sacrifice, the fruit of our lips, and completing the cycle of worship with doing something for other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not have uh, that hope of heaven, they've never truly gone to Christ and repented of their sin and acknowledged Christ as God the Son who went to the cross to bear my sin and then broke death by rising from the dead and received him as Lord and Savior of their lives. I pray that they would leave their old camp and come fully to the new one in Christ, Lord. And thank you, Lord God, that even this, from a first-century perspective of the Jewish life, we can hear that and we can certainly uh, grow in a way that acts towards you in a way that honors you. And thank you, Lord, for this and for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are gone this weekend. Give them safe travels home and back to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.